Section 24 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3, by James Boswell. Section 24. To James Boswell, Esquire dear sir this is the time of the year in which all express their good wishes to their friends and i send mine to you and your family may your lives be long happy and good i have been much out of order but i hope do not grow worse the crime of the schoolmaster whom you are engaged to prosecute is very great and may be suspected to be too common in our law it would be a breach of the peace and a misdemeanour that is a kind of indefinite crime not capital but punishable at the discretion of the court you cannot want matter all that needs to be said will easily occur mr shaw the author of the gallic grammar desires me to make a request for him to Lord Eglantoon, that he may be appointed chaplain to one of the new raised regiments. All our friends are as they were. Little has happened to them of either good or bad. Mrs. Thrale ran a great black hairdressing pin into her eye, but by great evacuation she kept it from inflaming, and it is almost well. Miss Reynolds has been out of order, but is better. Mrs. Williams is in a very poor state of health. If I should write on, I should perhaps write only complaints, and therefore I will content myself with telling you that I love to think on you and to hear from you, and that I am, dear sir, yours faithfully, Samuel Johnson, December the 27th, 1777. To Dr. Samuel Johnson, Edinburgh, January the 8th, 1778. Dear Sir, Your congratulations upon a new year are mixed with complaint. Mine must be so too. My wife has for some time been very ill, having been confined to the house these three months by a severe cold, attended with alarming symptoms. Here I gave a particular account of the distress which the person, upon every account most dear to me, suffered, and of the dismal state of apprehension in which I now was, adding that I never stood more in need of his consoling philosophy. Did you ever look at a book written by Wilson, a Scotchman, under the Latin name of Volusenus? according to the custom of literary men at a certain period it is entitled de animi tranquillitate i earnestly desire tranquillity bonares quies but i fear i shall never attain it for when unoccupied i grow gloomy and occupation agitates me to feverishness I am, dear sir, your most affectionate humble servant, James Boswell. To James Boswell, Esquire, dear sir, 
to a letter so interesting as your last it is proper to return some answer however little i may be disposed to write your alarm at your lady's illness was reasonable and not disproportionate to the appearance of the disorder i hope your physical friend's conjecture is now verified and all fear of a consumption at an end a little care and exercise will then restore her london is a good air for ladies and if you bring her hither i will do for her what she did for me i will retire from my apartments for her accommodation behave kindly to her and keep her cheerful footnote when johnson visited boswell in edinburgh mrs boswell insisted that to show all respect to the sage she would give up her own bedchamber to him and take a worse End of footnote. you always seem to call for tenderness know then that in the first month of the present year i very highly esteem and very cordially love you i hope to tell you this at the beginning of every year as long as we live and why should we trouble ourselves to tell or hear it oftener tell veronica euphemia and alexander that i wish them as well as their parents many happy years you have ended the negro's cause much to my mind lord auchinleck and dear lord hales were on the side of liberty lord hales's name reproaches me but if he saw my languid neglect of my own affairs he would rather pity than resent my neglect of his i hope to mend Ut et mihi vivam et amicis i am dear sir yours affectionately samuel johnson january the twenty fourth seventeen seventy eight my service to my fellow traveller joseph johnson maintained a long and intimate friendship with mr welsh who succeeded the celebrated henry fielding as one of his majesty's justices of the peace for westminster footnote fielding in his voyage to lisbon writes of him as my friend mr welch whom i never think or speak of but with love and esteem End of footnote. kept a regular office for the police of that great district and discharged his important trust for many years faithfully and ably footnote. johnson defines police as the regulation and government of a city or country so far as regards the inhabitants End of footnote. johnson who had an eager and unceasing curiosity to know human life in all its variety told me that he attended mr welch in his office for a whole winter to hear the examinations of the culprits but that he found an almost uniform tenor of misfortune wretchedness and profligacy mr welch's health being impaired he was advised to try the effect of a warm climate and johnson by his interest with mr Shamir, footnote at this time under secretary of state end of footnote procured him leave of absence to go to italy and to promise that the pension or salary of two hundred pounds a year which government allowed him should not be discontinued footnote 
fielding after telling how unlike his predecessor he had not plundered the public or the poor continues i had thus reduced an income of about five hundred pounds a year of the dirtiest money upon earth to little more than three hundred pounds a considerable proportion of which remained with my clerk he added that he received from the government a yearly pension out of the public service money End of footnote. mr welch accordingly went abroad accompanied by his daughter anne a young lady of uncommon talents and literature to saunders welch esq at the english coffee-house rome dear sir to have suffered one of my best and dearest friends to pass almost two years in foreign countries without a letter has a very shameful appearance of inattention but the truth is that there was no particular time in which i had anything particular to say and general expressions of goodwill i hope our long friendship is grown too solid to want of public affairs you have information from the newspapers wherever you go for the english keep no secret and of other things mrs nollikins informs you my intelligence could therefore be of no use and miss nancy's letters made it unnecessary to write to you for information i was likewise for some time out of humour to find that motion and nearer approaches to the sun did not restore your health so fast as i expected of your health the accounts have lately been more pleasing and i have the gratification of imagining to myself a length of years which i hope you have gained and of which the enjoyment will be improved by a vast accession of images and observations which your journeys and various residents have enabled you to make and accumulate you have travelled with this felicity almost peculiar to yourself that your companion is not to part from you at your journey's end but you are to live on together to help each other's recollection and to supply each other's omissions the world has few greater pleasures than that which two friends enjoy in tracing back at some distant time those transactions and events through which they have passed together one of the old man's miseries is that he cannot easily find a companion able to partake with him of the past you and your fellow-traveller have this comfort in store that your conversation will not be easily exhausted one will always be glad to say what the other will always be willing to hear that you may enjoy this pleasure long your health must have your constant attention i suppose you purpose to return this year there is no need of haste do not come hither before the height of summer that you may fall gradually into the inconveniences of your native clime july seems to be the proper month august and september will prepare you for the winter after having travelled so far to find health you must take care not to lose it at home 
and I hope a little care will eventually preserve it. Miss Nancy has doubtless kept a constant and copious journal. She must not expect to be welcome when she returns without a great mass of information. Let her review her journal often, and set down what she finds herself to have omitted, that she may trust to memory as little as possible, for memory is soon confused by a quick succession of things, and she will grow every day less confident of the truth of her own narratives, unless she can recur to some written memorials. If she has satisfied herself with hints, instead of full representations, let her supply the deficiencies now, while her memory is yet fresh, and while her father's memory may help her. If she observes this direction, she will not have travelled in vain, for she will bring home a book with which she may entertain herself to the end of life. If it were not now too late, I would advise her to note the impression which the first sight of anything new and wonderful made upon her mind. Let her now set her thoughts down, as she can recollect them, for faint as they may already be, they will grow every day fainter. Perhaps I do not flatter myself unreasonably when I imagine that you may wish to know something of me. I can gratify your benevolence with no account of health. The hand of time or of disease is very heavy upon me. I pass restless and uneasy nights, harassed with convulsions of my breast and flatulencies at my stomach, and restless nights make heavy days. But nothing will be mended by complaints, and therefore I will make an end. When we meet, we will try to forget our cares and our maladies, and contribute as we can to the cheerfulness of each other. If I had gone with you, I believe I should have been better, but I do not know that it was in my power. I am, dear sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, February the 3rd, 1778. This letter, while it gives admirable advice how to travel to the best advantage, and will therefore be of very general use, is another eminent proof of Johnson's warm and affectionate heart. Footnote. The friendship between Mr. Welch and him was unbroken. Mr. Welch died not many months before him, and bequeathed him five guineas for a ring, which Johnson received with tenderness as a kind memorial. His regard was constant for his friend Mr. Welch's daughters, of whom Jane is married to Mr. Nollikins, the statuary, whose merit is too well known to require any praise from me. Boswell. End of footnote. To Dr. Samuel Johnson, Edinburgh, February the 26th, 1778, my dear sir. Why I have delayed for near a month to thank you for your last affectionate letter, I cannot say, for my mind has been in better health these three weeks than for some years past. I believe I have evaded till I could send you a copy of Lord Hales's opinion on the Negro's cause which he wishes you to read and correct any errors that there may be in the language for says he we live in a critical though not a learned age 
and I seek to screen myself under the shield of Ajax. I communicated to him your apology for keeping the sheets of his annals so long. He says, I am sorry to see that Dr. Johnson is in a state of languor. Why should a sober Christian, neither an enthusiast nor a fanatic, be very merry or very sad? I envy his lordship's comfortable constitution, but well do I know that languor and dejection will afflict the best, however excellent their principles. I am in possession of Lord Hales's opinion in his own handwriting, and have had it for some time. My excuse, then, for procrastination must be that I wanted to have it copied, and I have now put that off so long that it will be better to bring it with me than send it, as I shall probably get you to look at it sooner when I solicit you in person. My wife, who is, thank God, a good deal better, is much obliged to you for your very polite and courteous offer of your apartment. But if she goes to London, it will be best for her to have lodgings in the more airy vicinity of Hyde Park. I, however, doubt much if I shall be able to prevail with her to accompany me to the metropolis, for she is so different from you and me that she dislikes travelling, and she is so anxious about her children that she thinks she should be unhappy if at a distance from them. She therefore wishes rather to go to some country place in Scotland where she can have them with her. I purpose being in London about the 20th of next month, as I think it creditable to appear in the House of Lords as one of Douglas's counsel, in the great and last competition between Duke Hamilton and him. Footnote. It seems from Boswell's words, as the editor of The Letters of Boswell points out, that in this case he was only a friend and amateur and not a duly appointed advocate. Certainly was not retained in an earlier stage of the cause, for on July the 22nd, 1767, he wrote, Though I am not a counsel in that cause, yet I am much interested in it. End of footnote. I am sorry poor Mrs. Williams is so ill, though her temper is unpleasant. She has always been polite and obliging to me. I wish many happy years to good Mr. Levet, who, I suppose, holds his usual place at your breakfast table. Footnote. Dr. Percy, the Bishop of Dromore, humorously observed that Levet used to breakfast on the crust of a roll, which Johnson, after tearing out the crumb for himself, threw to his humble friend, Boswell. Perhaps the word through is here too strong. Dr. Johnson never treated Levet with contempt. Malone. Hawkins says that Dr. Johnson frequently observed that Levet was indebted to him for nothing more than house room, his share in a penny loaf at breakfast, and now and then a dinner on a Sunday. Johnson's role, says Dr. Harwood, was every morning placed in a small blue and white china saucer which had belonged to his wife and which he familiarly called Tetty. 
see the inscription on the saucer in the Lichfield Museum. End of footnote. I am ever, my dear sir, your affectionate humble servant, James Boswell. To the same. Edinburgh, February the 28th, 1778. My dear sir, you are at present busy amongst the English poets, preparing for the public instruction and entertainment, prefaces, biographical and critical. It will not therefore be out of season to appeal to you for the decision of a controversy which has arisen between a lady and me concerning a passage in Parnell. That poet tells us that his hermit quitted his cell to know the world by sight, to find if books or swains report it right, for yet by swains alone the world he knew, whose feet came wandering o'er the nightly dew. I maintain that there is an inconsistency here, for as the hermit's notions of the world were formed from the reports both of books and swains, he could not justly be said to know by swains alone. Be pleased to judge between us, and let us have your reasons. What do you say to taxation no tyranny now, after Lord North's declaration or confession, or whatever else his conciliatory speech should be called? I never differed from you in politics, but upon two points the Middlesex election, and the taxation of the Americans by the British Houses of Representatives. There is a charm in the word Parliament, so I avoid it. As I am a steady and a warm Tory, I regret that the King does not see it to be better for him to receive constitutional supplies from his American subjects by the voice of their own assemblies, where his royal person is represented, than through the medium of his British subjects. I am persuaded that the power of the crown, which I wish to increase, will be greater when in contact with all its dominions, than if the rays of regal bounty were to shine upon America through that dense and troubled body a modern British Parliament. Footnote. Alluding to a line in his Vanity of Human Wishes, describing Cardinal Wolsey in his state of elevation, through him the rays of regal bounty shine. Boswell. End of footnote. But enough of this subject, for your angry voice at Ashbourne upon it still sounds awful in my mind's ears. I am ever, my dear sir, your most affectionate humble servant, James Boswell. To the same, Edinburgh, March the 12th, 1778. My dear sir, the alarm of your late illness distressed me but a few hours, for on the evening of the day that it reached me, I found it contradicted in the London Chronicle, which I could depend upon as authentic concerning you, Mr. Storne being the printer of it. I did not see the paper in which the approaching extinction of a bright luminary was announced. Sir William Forbes told me of it, and he says he saw me so uneasy that he did not give me the report 
in such strong terms as he read it he afterwards sent me a letter from mr langton to him which relieved me much i am however not quite easy as i have not heard from you and now i shall not have that comfort before i see you for i set out for london to-morrow before the post comes in i hope to be with you on wednesday morning and i ever am with the highest veneration my dear sir your much obliged faithful and affectionate humble servant james boswell on wednesday march the eighteenth i arrived in london and i was informed by good mr francis that his master was better and was gone to mr thrale's at streatham to which place i wrote to him begging to know when he should be in town he was not expected for some time but next day having called on dr taylor in dean's yard westminster i found him there and was told he had come to town for a few hours he met me with his usual kindness but instantly returned to the writing of something on which he was employed when i came in and on which he seemed much intent finding him thus engaged i made my visit very short and had no more of his conversation except his expressing a serious regret that a friend of ours was living at too much expense considering how poor an appearance he made footnote mr langton end of footnote if said he a man has splendour from his expense if he spends his money in pride or in pleasure he has value but if he lets others spend it for him which is most commonly the case he has no advantage from it on friday march the twentieth i found him at his own house sitting with mrs williams and was informed that the room formerly allotted to me was now appropriated to a charitable purpose mrs de moulin footnote daughter of dr swinfen johnson's godfather and widow of mr de moulin a writing-master boswell end of footnote and i think her daughter and a miss carmichael being all lodged in it such was his humanity and such his generosity that mrs de moulin herself told me he allowed her half a guinea a week let it be remembered that this was above a twelfth part of his pension his liberality indeed was at all periods of his life very remarkable mr howard of lichfield at whose father's house johnson had in his early years been kindly received told me that when he was a boy at the charter house his father wrote to him to go and pay a visit to mr samuel johnson which he accordingly did and found him in an upper room of poor appearance johnson received him with much courteousness and talked a great deal to him as to a schoolboy of the course of his education and other particulars when he afterwards came to know and understand the high character of this great man he recollected his condescension with wonder he added that when he was going away mr johnson presented him with half a guinea and this said mr howard was at a time when he probably had not another we retired from mrs williams to another room 
Tom Davies soon after joined us. He had now unfortunately failed in his circumstances, and was much indebted to Dr. Johnson's kindness for obtaining for him many alleviations of his distress. Footnote. Johnson wrote to Mrs. Montague on March the 5th. Now, dear madam, we must talk of business. Poor Davies, the bankrupt bookseller, is soliciting his friends to collect a small sum for the repurchase of part of his household stuff. Several of them gave him five guineas. It would be an honour to him to owe part of his relief to Mrs. Montague. J. Disraeli says, We owe to Davies beautiful editions of some of our elder poets, which are now eagerly sought after, yet, though all his publications were of the best kinds and are now of increasing value, the taste of Tom Davies twice ended in bankruptcy. End of footnote. After he went away, Johnson blamed his folly in quitting the stage, by which he and his wife got five hundred pounds a year. I said I believed it was owing to Churchill's attack upon him. He mouths a sentence as curs mouth a bone. Footnote. Davies wrote to Garrick in 1763, I remember that during the run of Cymbeline I had the misfortune to disconcert you in one scene of that play, for which I did immediately beg your pardon, and did attribute it to my accidentally seeing Mr. Churchill in the pit, with great truth. And that was the only time I can recollect of my being confused or unmindful of my business, when that gentleman was before me. I had even then a more moderate opinion of my abilities than your candour would allow me, and have always acknowledged that gentleman's picture of me was fair. He adds that he left the stage on account of Garrick's unkindness, who, he says, at rehearsals took all imaginable pains to make me unhappy. End of footnote. Johnson. I believe so too, sir, but what a man is he who is to be driven from the stage by a line? Another line would have driven him from his shop. I told him that I was engaged as counsel at the bar of the House of Commons to oppose a road bill in the county of Stirling, and asked him what mode he would advise me to follow in addressing such an audience. Johnson. Why, sir, you must provide yourself with a good deal of extraneous matter, which you are to produce occasionally so as to fill up the time, for you must consider that they do not listen much. If you begin with the strength of your cause, it may be lost before they begin to listen. When you catch a moment of attention, press the merits of the question upon them. He said, as to one point of the merits, that he thought, it would be a wrong thing to deprive the small landholders of the privilege of assessing themselves for making and repairing the high roads. It was destroying a certain portion of liberty, without a good reason, which was always a bad thing. When I mentioned this observation next day to Mr. Wilkes, he pleasantly said, What, does he talk of liberty? 
liberty is as ridiculous in his mouth as religion in mine mr wilkes's advice as to the best mode of speaking at the bar of the house of commons was not more respectful towards the senate than that of dr johnson be as impudent as you can as merry as you can and say whatever comes uppermost jack lee is the best heard there of any council and he is the most impudent dog and always abusing us footnote he was afterwards solicitor-general under lord rockingham and attorney-general under the duke of portland i love mr lee exceedingly wrote boswell though i believe there are not any two specific propositions of any sort in which we exactly agree but the general mass of sense and sociality literature and religion in each of us produces two given quantities which unite and effervesce wonderfully well i know few men i would go farther to serve than jack lee lord eldon said that lee in the debates upon the india bill speaking of the charter of the east india company expressed his surprise that there could be such political strife about what he called a piece of parchment with a bit of wax dangling to it this most improvident expression uttered by a crown lawyer formed the subject of comment and reproach in all the subsequent debates in all the publications of the times and in everybody's conversation in the debate on fox's india bill on december the third seventeen eighty three lee asked what was the consideration of a charter a skin of parchment with a waxed seal at the corner compared to the happiness of thirty millions of subjects and the preservation of a mighty empire end of footnote end of section twenty four